Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Campsite Media. A warning. We'll be discussing eating disorders, so if this topic is difficult for you, please take care while listening. We typically did something for him every year. We called it a creative review. We would show him models we'd used in the past so we could get his input, and we'd show him the head sheets of models we were considering using in the future. Early, early in my leadership of the catalog, Les and another man um, were in the other man's office and they were looking at a Playboy magazine. And apparently Les said, well, get Cindy in here. So they brought me in so I could look at this Playboy magazine with them because Les thought that might be inspiring for the kind of models we would want. And, you know, I, I remember being kind of speechless there. You know, I suppose in the words of today, I could say it made me uncomfortable. But, um, you know, again, we're talking about 30 years ago. Sort of like, okay, you want me to look at this? I'll look at this, fine. You like big boobs? Got it. You think these girls are attractive? Got it. I'm loaded with freckles. It is what it is. Um, And I think it was more the point that these were women that were, well, what were they? They were flawless. I'm Vanessa Grigoriadis. And I'm Justine Harmon. This is Fallen Angel, Episode 6, Trick Mirror. You just heard from Cindy again, talking about pouring over a nudie mag with her former boss, Les Wexner. Flawlessness was what Victoria's Secret models were all about. They were as perfect as those 18th century Georgian houses that Wexner had in New Albany. And when you think about it, that sexual but wholesome playboy look, skinny blonde chicks with big boobs, was pretty similar to the Victoria's Secret look. And as Les's empire grew, it spread everywhere. The thong peeking out over the low-rise jean, that was the look of the land. So now Wexner had his sights set on a new demographic. The thing is, I was always too young for Victoria's Secret. It was pink that was the game changer. Like pink, pink changed everything. That's the podcaster and fashion designer, Rachel Omandi. Like me, she was in high school when Victoria's Secret introduced pink, a new product line aimed at teens that was largely an excuse to get young girls to function as living, breathing billboards for the brand. They actually sold underwear that said, enjoy the view. And pink was stamped in giant varsity style letters across young butts everywhere. 
the pink spread across the butt. What? Stop. That was like designer at that point. That was like a flex. Like I remember distinctly having these- The fold at the top. The fold at the top. Yeah, you wanted that pink trademark showing somewhere. It was, you know, colorful. It was playful. It was, you know, the cutest underwear, the polka dots, the, you know, perfectly gently padded bra. And the bras were for young girls, for young women. And so, so much of my relationship with Victoria's Secret came through pink. It was kind of a gateway drug. For girls who were raised on pink, Les Wexner and his cronies didn't even really need to promote Victoria's Secret. We just grew to love it naturally. I went to all-girls school, so I didn't know what it meant to be sexy. I had no idea how to like interact with the opposite sex, but I always was interested. This is former fashion magazine editor Danielle Prescott. Back in 2014, when we both worked at Elle, Danielle wrote a viral web series called I Am Turning Myself Into a Victoria's Secret Angel. And so the marketing of Victoria's Secret like worked on me in a very specific way, which was like, well, we'll show you how to be sexy and this is how. And so I was like, oh, okay, like I get it. Like, okay, so I have to wear this push-up bra and I have to wear a thong and I have to have like barrel curls. And like, that is, you know, that is it. When I did interact with boys, I observed their preference for that kind of look and feel and vibe. Danielle had grown up on the brand. Writing a story about what it takes to be Victoria's Secret material would be an absolute cakewalk. I became extra curious about the machine of Victoria's Secret. So I pitched an idea that would essentially make me <laughs> a Victoria's <laughs> Secret angel. And Victoria's Secret got on board. They were really excited about it. And off I went. So I had to go to Victoria's Secret headquarters in Manhattan and they lock you in a room. They hire a third party you know, media training company. And usually what happens, especially at uh, Victoria's Secret Fashion Showtime is like they're pushing product to sell. Like that is like essentially like what the whole point of it is. So for me, it was like they were trying to teach me how to like talk about this fantasy bra. You remember the fantasy bra, right? I don't think I've seen anything so beautiful in my life. That crazy push-up bra Victoria's Secret started to make for their most popular angels. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. Can I touch it? Will I get like hit by security? The most expensive fantasy bra on record was the diamond and ruby one Giselle Bündchen wore in 2000. $15 million. It landed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most expensive item of lingerie ever. And so whether it's, you you know, you're wearing the fantasy bra and you have to make sure that you know that it's $7 million and where all the diamonds come from and all of that. There are about 6,500 gems on this bra. It's valued at $2 million. Or it can be like, you know, a more commercial product, but you have to make sure that you can communicate effectively why someone would need to buy it and also how excited you are to wear it. It was so bizarre. But like, again, that's just like how that system really like worked because they weren't going to let you talk to any of these girls unless you made sure to also report on the thing that they were trying to sell. 
Besides having to memorize the banal details of a bra made from 20,000 Swarovski crystals or whatever, the story was a dream assignment for Danielle. It was guaranteed to perform for the website. She'd get in the best shape of her life and then fly on a private plane with the Victoria's Secret Angels. They flew everyone to London for the Victoria's Secret fashion show on a giant private jet where like the entire plane was made to be first class. It was like called Angel Air or something. Victoria's Secret Angels have landed in London. It was so absurd. Went to the after party. It was ridiculous. Harry Styles was there getting wasted. It's a privilege. Like it was just crazy. But it wasn't all fun and champagne and Harry Styles. While working on the series, Danielle got an education in what it takes to train your body and your brain to be a Victoria's Secret angel. Danielle began seeing a chiropractor slash nutritionist known back then as the guy who got Victoria's Secret models down to fighting weight. Fun fact, Vanessa and I have both gone to this doctor, and we both struggled to adhere to his strict regimen. Limp, steamed vegetables, and these grainy orange chocolate shakes. And you drank that orange stuff? I drank everything he told me to drink. I ate everything he told me to eat. But Danielle, who had a history of eating disorders, says she quickly relapsed into the anorexia and bulimia she struggled with since she was a teenager. Anything for the story, right? I was full-on anorexic and bulimic in high school. Like, I passed out at school when I was 14 years old and fell down the steps because I hadn't eaten, like, for, I don't even know, like a week or something. I started seeing a therapist and, like, went into treatment after that. And so I had already been, like, practicing, like, this kind of behavior. But I never told him that I had extensive food issues. And I saw him, I started seeing him in 2013, and I saw him until, like, the end of 2019. Stop it. Every two weeks. You went to him for six years? Religiously, yes. Danielle says that going to this seemingly above-board nutritionist, going to him for six years, gave her a kind of cover for the disordered eating she had known in her bones since she was a girl. She would eventually move to New Orleans, where she is currently putting the finishing touches on her memoir, Token Black Girl. I did a lot of self-examination, I would say, over the last two years to try and figure out. Like I I felt that I was like, I have really low self-esteem and I don't understand like where it comes from. I never feel like I'm good enough. I never feel satisfied with anything that I do or or how I look ever. And I'm like, but it doesn't seem to be an innate situation. So I started trying to pinpoint all of the places where I was shown with visual examples that, you know, like how I look was somehow undesirable. For years, she would obsess over every morsel she put in her mouth while working overtime to convince friends and colleagues that she was just fine. Nothing to see here. After volunteering to write a story about Victoria's Secret Angels and their diets, Danielle found herself staring into a trick mirror. 
Because even as they were making Danielle feel insecure, Victoria's Secret models were living a parallel reality. Here's former angel Aaron Heatherton again. You know, at a certain point, I was getting ready for the VS show and I had these thigh-high boots that I was wearing. And like, I guess they wanted my thighs to be thinner. And I'm like, I felt great. You know, I was strong. I was doing everything I was supposed to be doing. But I wasn't like, you know, that kind of skinny that's an 18-year-old, right? In the boots, I looked more like a woman. And I remember getting an email from my agency and a call, I think, actually, because they did it. Yeah, I think it was a call. And I think that's maybe strategic. But they said that I didn't look good and they want me to lose weight in my thighs, which I love a targeted weight loss comment. That kind of pushed me over the edge a little bit. It definitely led me down this path where I went to see this nutritionist who started me on this diet pill called Fentermine, which is like my therapist later called like bathwater meth. I don't know. I was just like, let me Lance Armstrong this because I am renovating my condo. Like I can't lose my job right now. So I started like injecting myself with HCG. HCG, as in the hormone your body produces when it's pregnant. It's also a hormone some doctors say prevents muscle loss during bouts of extreme dieting. The muscles stay tight and sculpted while the rest of the body shrinks, sometimes up to a pound a day. I was just like, help me lose weight. What do people do? And he suggested something this other model did that worked for her. This is like this nutritionist to, you know, the stars, whatever. And like, I don't know, I started like a diabetic injecting my stomach every morning. I look back at it as like emotional cutting because like I was so against everything that I was doing, but I was just reluctantly doing it almost to like feel the pain. I asked Aaron something that has been bothering me, something I've never quite understood, but have blindly believed in since I was in high school. Since I started folding down the top of my pink athletic shorts to show off my pelvic bones. When did this crazy thinness become a brass ring? Like, why do you think that that is something that would move product or be a good business decision, if it even is? I've speculated, but it's not something that I've ever come to like a concrete, you know, understanding of. My one theory is that like when you see someone who's really skinny, it makes you like kind of do a double take. You can just tell and someone's body is just like very like obscenely small and It has an impact on you. That double take, that's powerful in marketing because you need to like be shocked enough to look. That's also representative of youth, right? Because when you're very young, you tend to be much skinnier. And I saw it's kind of a combination of that. I think it's just like making everyone look like they're 16. I don't know. It's just about business. More after the break. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mm -hmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. 
This is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Was it all about business for Les Wexner, the way that Erin Heatherton, the Victoria's Secret model, just said before the break? It's so hard to know. Wexner has never personally commented on the health and diet of Victoria's Secret models, and a spokesperson for him declined comment to the questions we sent for this episode. But some of Wexner's other companies, including Pink, in my opinion, are pretty odd. Think about one of the other ones. Abercrombie and Fitch, the softcore images of college students with gleaming torsos cavorting in the surf or sitting on an elephant. The stores were dark and cave-like. At the front, there were shirtless teen hunks beckoning you in. Inside, you'd be hit by pulsating dance music and perfume so strong it felt like it had just been sprayed directly into your mouth. For a period of time, the company's PR troubles piled up. Its catalog included racy photos of nude models and articles about sex. A lawsuit suggested they favored white people above minorities for floor positions in their stores. The suit alleges that Abercrombie refused or avoided hiring qualified minority applicants as brand representatives or models working on the sales floor. And if they were hired, they were given undesirable positions to keep them out of the public eye. Multiple Hispanic... They ultimately settled with plaintiffs for $40 million and entered into a consent decree that required them to start diversity programs. They even settled a suit with a college student who had a prosthetic limb. The student was working at a store in London on the floor, but then was told she had breached the look policy of the company. She was sent to work in a stock room away from customers. It was hit with employee discrimination lawsuits and its former CEO made headlines after fat-shaming comments made in 2006. All this focus on looks, it's just strange, considering that Les Wexner's vision of himself was so different. I think what I've tried to do is make the world a better place. Uh, I think that's what's really important. Nobody remembers who sold the most togas in Rome. But from what I can glean from a journalist who worked on a story involving Wexner, he might not like looking himself straight in the eye. Here's a story from Ben Wallace. He's a New York Magazine writer who was at the time writing for Philadelphia Magazine, where he covered a strange, somewhat telling story involving Wexner and a society portrait painter. It was another type of twisted mirror. Nelson Shanks was known as the society portrait painter who rich people would hire if they wanted a kind of realistic classical portrait of themselves. And people he had painted in the past included Princess Diana, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, sort of like a modern John Singer Sargent. So Leslie Wexner crossed our radar because his pal Jeffrey Epstein actually through Ghislaine Maxwell commissioned a portrait of Abigail Wexner, Wexner's wife, and their four children, who were young at the time, from Nelson Shanks. The agreed-upon price was $325,000. 
his time was limited to two days at the Wexner estate in Ohio, where he observed Abigail Wexner and her kids. He completed the portrait. And very quickly, he heard that the Wexners were not pleased with the portrait. They weren't pleased with the poses or the expressions or the relative sizes and ages of the children. And Abigail Wexner thought that they looked unrecognizable. So when Shanks you know, heard that they were not pleased with the portrait, um, you know, within, I think, about a week, he invoiced them and they didn't pay. And Epstein tried to return the painting to Shanks. At that point, Shanks was suing the Wexners and Jeffrey Epstein and Gillian Maxwell as a case of, you know, Philistines who couldn't appreciate real art. And he told a newspaper, you know, that the Wexners were asking for cheap expressions for corn. They wanted sparkly, flossy, whatever. To my civilian eye, it looked like a perfectly competent, realistic oil portrait of a family. But what are people looking for when they commission a portrait? And do they really want to be shown to look exactly how they actually look? And, um, you know, if you actually show them as they are, they hate you. I can't imagine exactly what the conversation between Jeffrey Epstein and Les Wexner was about this portrait and returning it and the lawsuit, which was settled. But also, as I researched Wexner's art collection, I was sort of surprised to hear about Epstein buying Wexner a society portrait at all. Because a lot of Wexner's collection seems quite different. The Wexners are extremely prolific and discerning art collectors. They have a large Picasso collection. In fact, here's Picasso's granddaughter talking about it. I think the fact that it's a very private collection, that very few people have actually visited them, makes it very special. It is so incredibly strange that the Wexners would think a painting of themselves painted by Nelson Shanks didn't look realistic enough because their collection is really not about realism. The Picassos are cubist, human figures that don't look human. The reverse of the imagery of perfect women in perfect lingerie. There's a darkness to this art collection. And I believe there's a darkness overall to the iconography of some of Les's companies. And some of that darkness is reflected in the fact he became so close to such a demonic person. It's clear Les Wexner was constantly giving something to Jeffrey Epstein, whether it was his finances, philanthropic endeavors, or, according to the New York Times, the power to borrow money on Wexner's behalf, to sign Wexner's tax returns, to hire people, to make acquisitions. But what was Wexner getting in return, other than a portrait of his family that he didn't really like? Was Wexner seeing his real self? Reflected in Epstein's eyes? That's what con men do, after all. They reflect back the version of you you want to believe in. At least until they're busted. Billionaire businessman Jeffrey Epstein pleaded guilty to two prostitution counts in Florida. He was sentenced to 13 months in jail. Former Miami U.S. attorney Alexander... This friend of Wexner's had gone down in a spectacularly revolting way. The nude photos in the hallways of the mansion... The way that Glenn would allegedly pick up girls at spas in Florida. The phone messages that would say that girls needed to come by for tutoring. Lessons are free, and you can have first today if you call. The victim who even said that Jeffrey Epstein had an egg-shaped penis? It all began to come out in the late 2000s. 
Now, you'd think that Les Wexner would have immediately cut ties with Epstein. But the New York Times reported that it took him 18 months to move away from the man that he had called a most loyal friend, with excellent judgment and unusually high standards. By nature, I'm an optimist. Maybe I was driven to escape. What I tried to do is make the world a better place, maybe create my own world, my own world. driven to escape. For Jeffrey Epstein, as we know, everything actually turned out pretty fine after that first criminal charge. He did 13 months in prison and then was released on house arrest. It wasn't exactly a trip to the guillotine. During his year-long house arrest, uh, he was flying around on his private jet, with permission, of course, to his eight-story home in New York City and to an island he owns in the Caribbean. Many say Epstein, has Epstein may not have lost much when he went to prison this first time, but eventually Wexner did slam the door on the relationship. Wexner is famous for when he cuts off ties with people. I mean, it's a cold break. Victoria's Secret, Les Wexner, and the name Jeffrey Epstein, they could not be associated. Can I make the world a better place by selling underpants? Not really. That's just the means that gives me resource to to try to make the world a better place. More after the break. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So Victoria's Secret was a well-oiled machine. There was pink for the young girls, Victoria's Secret angels keeping everyone's eyes on them. And the curtain that all that stranger stuff was happening behind was opaque and heavy. I'm talking about the stuff that I believe was about controlling women's bodies. The My Favorite Murder hosts wrote a book that I recently read, and it really struck a chord with me thinking about this story. They write that in America... A woman's job is to make men love her or she's worthless. And men only love women who are beautiful and thin and don't complain a lot. It's not that far off, right? They sort of have their finger on the trick. That men rely on your fear of them judging your looks and you in general to keep you in their control. But there was one woman at Victoria's Secret who didn't fall for this trick. And she was a key domino to fall. I want to reintroduce you to Casey Crow Taylor, the publicist we heard from at the beginning of the series who said she heard Ed Razick say that women only look good to have sex with men. Ed did not respond to our request for comment about that. Casey started as an intern at Victoria's Secret. She helped publicize their perfumes, which all had hilarious names. Mango Temptation, Enchanted Apple. I guess it was a sexy fruit theme. She also helped models be on time for interviews. Every single person on our team would be assigned to a model to basically mediate press, to make sure that like no inappropriate questions are asked. What were like the supermodel talking points? Like what was that kind of stuff? Like talking about the hero holiday bra for the season. 
Or maybe there was like a specific part in the fashion show that, you know, Ed and Monica were really excited about, like a certain like section or theme. Ed and who? Okay, so Ed didn't pull off this entire show on his own. He had a right-hand woman, Monica Mitro. VP of Public Relations for Victoria's Secret, Monica Mitro, and President and Chief Marketing Officer of Intimate Brands, Ed Razik, are charged with the crucial task of selecting the new models that will make up the cast of this year's show. I saw Lily at a Victoria's Secret shoot and I couldn't believe the transformation of your body. You always had an amazing body, but it was just longer and leaner and trim. If you telescope out on any important or visible Victoria's Secret meeting, you'll see Monica. And we're looking at our models as being characters of who would be a good wood nymph. An impeccably dressed brunette in towering heels. She was always there, cracking clever jokes, working in lockstep with Ed. Average shoe size is 39, average height would be 5'10". Uh, Average age, cute. Monica Mitro was the executive vice president of brand communication and events. Monica was also responsible for coming up with the fantasy bra idea. That was Monica. They are sexy and beautiful and voluptuous and curvy. I think a lot of what the fashion show was and what it became is really due to Monica's creativity behind the scenes there. We just keep seeing so much beauty. So much beauty. So Casey interacted a lot with Monica, less with Ed. But one day, something bizarre happened with both of them. We were on set. And basically, my role at these shoots as the PR team was to capitalize on having a model for a full day. As a model was coming off set, we'd be like, hey, can we grab you for five to 10 minutes to get this PR video? Casey's job was to get the video. In other words, a video of a model that could be used for PR on social media. Not that big a deal. And on that specific day, we were telling Lily Aldridge that she was going to wear the fantasy bra. That was part of a package for the fashion show that my team needed to get. What happened was Taylor Swift told Ed that she was going to fly in on a helicopter to Pier 59 Studios And there was a helicopter pad right there. Um, And she was going to tell Lily she was wearing the fantasy bra. Now, you could call Taylor Swift a friend of Victoria's Secret. Not that she's a lingerie model, but she did perform at a couple of Victoria's Secret shows. One of my best friends is performing during a Taylor Swift, so it's going to be really fun, and I'm so excited. Taylor became friends with the big Victoria's Secret models. Carly Kloss, of course, was her BFF. And so... We're waiting all day for Taylor Swift to come on her helicopter, which all of us knew wasn't happening besides Ed. Why did you know this wasn't happening? Just because it was so ridiculous? Like, yes. Like, is Taylor Swift going to interrupt her day? She's a very busy, successful woman for a five-minute PR video with us. For like a little bit, we were like, okay, maybe. And then hours and hours are going by and we have no real plan from her. So we're trying to push him and say, let's just get this done. Let's get this like recorded and wrapped. And so we don't have to hold Lily. We need to move forward and do this. I have yeah. some news for you. Yeah. You're wearing the fantasy, bro. Oh my God, I'm going to cry. Thank you. She's just really nice. <laughs> According to Casey, what Ed did after he might have felt hurt that Taylor Swift wasn't showing up was very weird. Every time we had a big shoot day, like we would just have a buffet style lunch catered. 
So I'm going back up to get more food. And Ed physically steps in front of me and says, are you really going to get more food? And I pretty, I pretty much froze. And he continued to say things like, I really don't think you need more bread. He was sitting with the table of models. And at one point, he was trying to get the models to make a comment like, do you really think she needs to go get another plate of food? He was saying things like, well, just look, just look at her. I remember being like, oh God, please no one say anything. And none of them engaged, thank God. I think I would have like died on the spot, truthfully, because I had a fairly good and professional relationship with most of those models. And I would have felt so much more crushed if they had said something. And then um, he says, I don't even know how you look at yourself in the morning and leave the house like that. It was like this really like schoolyard bullying tone. And then I finally was just like, I have to do something. And I just kept moving forward towards the buffet because I, I, I honestly had no idea what to do. So I just kept, I just kept like on the path that I was originally going. And he kept making comments about me to the models. As I'm like at the buffet being like, oh, like did that just happen? And I'm literally like autopilot putting food on my plate. I hear to the right of me, Monica, and she said, Ed, just stop, just leave her alone. So I go straight shot to the bathroom and I just like, I'm shaking. Casey says when she came out of the bathroom, no one said another word about what had just happened with Ed. It was like it never happened. Now, Victoria's Secret did not respond to our questions, including those about pressure on models, any use of NDAs, and Monica did not respond to questions either. But Ed told us that this incident did not happen. And he said that if he was ever to criticize someone going back to a buffet line, quote, it would be me and only me. Ed definitely was the top of the abuse chain, basically. And I know and witnessed Monica experienced verbal abuse from Ed. In in larger fashion show meetings, if Monica like voiced some kind of idea or opinion, there were times when he would be supportive, but then I, most of the time what I saw was that he either like made a joke or he said something mean, like this is why I run the show, Monica, not you, or like some kind of like putting her down quote-unquote, putting her in her place kind of language. But then there were also times where the two of them were very chummy and friendly and making jokes. Both of them had like a manipulation cycle, right? And it's like, it's that like classic kind of abuser cycle where they treat you like golden family to pull you in only to push you away to make sure that you like are dying to get back into their good graces. And I think they did that to each other a lot. Casey was one of the first employees from the company to speak out about her negative experiences working at Victoria's Secret. I don't have an NDA. I was too naive to realize they were asking me whether or not I wanted money. I do feel a sense of some kind of responsibility that, like, I don't have an NDA. Something happened to me. 
while it sucked and there was some trauma, it wasn't this overly horrific, like drawn out event. And to be honest, most people I talk to, even though they are so angry about what happened to them, they are too scared still of Ed and of Les and of these NDAs that they were truthfully unfairly served. I have a lot of opinions on women receiving NDAs now. And and I think whether or not women receive money for experiencing harassment, I still don't think it's okay to take away their voice. Casey was approached by a law firm who wanted her help. This firm, which is where Anita Hill works, was on Casey's side. And they were ready to try to stop Victoria's Secret from issuing NDAs related to sexual harassment and have voices be heard. And soon, the bigwigs of big lingerie would make some big-ass mistakes. That's next time on Fallen Angel. If someone stole $10,000 from me, I'd call the cops or I'd call the FBI. Like, the idea that Wexner allowed Epstein to steal millions of dollars and then didn't try to prosecute him just doesn't make sense. The brand didn't evolve with the market. They stuck to their guns way longer than they should have. We've seen this host of brands emerge. The question is who breaks out, who goes forward. Fallen Angel is a documentary production from C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio and Campside Media. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran for Cadence 13, Vanessa Gregoriadis, and me, Justine Harmon. Executive producers for Campside are Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Matt Scher. Narrated and written by Vanessa Gregoriadis and Justine Harmon. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Production led by Paige Heimson. Edited by Alistair Sherman. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Production support and research by Ian Mant, Sean Cherry, Bob Tabador, Bill Schultz, Kelly Rafferty, Callie Hitchcock, Natalia Winkleman, Aaliyah Papes, Alex Yablon, and Doug Slaywin. Artwork and graphic design by Kurt Courtney. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Maura Curran, Hilary Schuff, and Josephina Francis. Original music by Skyline Brigade. Our theme song is Heartbreak Hollywood by Ledesi. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now, each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.